You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Hello, I'm Teresa McKee, your host for A Mindful Moment. Thank you for joining me as we explore ways to increase mindfulness in our day-to-day experiences. In addition to our regular weekly podcast, we also have the privilege of interviewing experts from around the world to further our understanding of how to live mindfully. The Therapist Who Moves You, Erica Hornthal, is a licensed clinical professional counselor and board-certified dance and movement therapist. She is the founder and CEO of Chicago Dance Therapy and creator of the Dancey Therapy Advocates Summit. Erica specializes in working with older adults, families, and caregivers who are touched by dementia, movement, and cognitive disorders. She utilizes a somatic approach to engage her clients regardless of cognitive and physical ability. According to Erica, when we talk about movement, most of us think of exercise. But the way we move our bodies, how we walk, roll, dance, stretch, connect, and take up space, is about so much more than physical fitness. Our movements impact our mental and emotional health. And when we change the way we move, we can change the way we live. I sat down with Erica recently to discuss her new book, Body Aware. Hi, Erica. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really enjoyed the book. I firmly believe that our emotions are stored throughout our bodies, and I rely on it that connection really daily. Now, I happen to use, in addition to meditation, I use EFT and muscle testing and some moving meditations, but I have to tell you, I've never investigated dance therapy before. I don't even know why, but I found the book very interesting. Early in the book, you talk about sitting in a slouching pose and then ask the reader to consider how we use our devices. So can you talk about the significance of that? Sure. So I think we're familiar with slouching. You know, most of us, when we think of posture, then have this reaction of, oh, I should sit up (laughs) because we, we realize that it's, it's not comfortable and sustainable to have whatever you consider perfect posture. But I took it one step further and personally realized that when I engage in my devices, I, I slump to accommodate for the screen or where I'm holding my device. So oftentimes people will say, you know, make sure you're holding it up or, you know, put it on a table so that you're at eye level because more often than not, we are again, meeting our devices where they are, not bringing them up to where we are. 
And so much research has shown that our posture contributes to our mental health. So even if we have pretty, I would say, um, positive mental health, it's very easy for our mental health to, to slip just based off of the fact that we are constantly on our devices. And when we are, our posture is not in line with a positive mental health or a, a positive state of mental health, if you will. And so if we're mindful of it and bodyful of it, we can adjust, but most of us are doing it on the go. I mean, it's illegal, but we're doing it in the car. You know what I mean? Like we're doing it in places that we're not being mindful. And that is, you know, again, contributing to, um, to unhealthy behaviors and, and lack of mental health in general. Yeah, oh, I agree. And I actually do have one more question related to this and then we'll move sure. on to the other stuff. But as my listeners know, I, I tend to have a lot of concerns about the effects our devices are having on us. Oh, yeah. And you write about the impact technology has on our kinesphere. Am I saying that right? Mm-hmm. So could you explain what that is and what, what the effects are? Sure. You know, it's interesting to me because it was not the focus of the book, but I actually had an entire chapter on how technology impacts our movement, which then impacts our mental health. So I'm glad I didn't take it out completely. I kind of fought to have you know a, a little section in there because I think it's it's necessary. It's very beneficial and powerful because it's not something we're thinking about. So yeah, kinesphere is basically the, the space around us, um, how far we can reach into the places around us, how, um, how much space we take up around us. That's our kinesphere. Um, if I reach my arms out as far as they'll go without moving my entire body out of its location, that's my kinesphere. And so our devices, again, are limiting our kinesphere. Like as I sit here speaking to you, I'm actually on a 13 inch tablet laptop and it's limiting my kinesphere. You know, it's limiting the scope of what I see. I, I do this with telehealth, my clients all the time. Notice just how we shrink to come into this screen versus really engaging with all that is around us, knowing that when I do that, I might be off camera and that's okay. <laughs> but if we're looking to be visible, if we're filming something or producing content, if you will, we wanna be visible. We want people to see everything that we're offering. And that's not always possible with our tiny, teeny little devices. So that's what I mean. You know, one of the themes of the book is that we don't take up space in our bodies. Therefore, we don't take up space in the world. So if we are constantly making ourselves smaller to adapt and accommodate these screens in order for us to be visible, we are limiting how much space we take up in the world, which is, again, limiting that idea of kinesphere. And it makes us shrink. And it goes back to that idea of posture. When we shrink and we stoop in our posture, we are not showing up entirely for ourselves, for our communities, and, and for the world. It's absolutely fascinating. And I'm sorry you had to take the whole chapter out, but it's just- okay. Maybe I'm it'll be the next book. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a, I mean, I see it every day and, you know, even during, well, now it's Zoom events, but during live events, it really struck me because you can see people's shoulders hunched and they're bent down. Mm-hmm. and it's not good energy. <laughs> I can just feel it. So on top of all the, what I think it's doing to our mental health and emotions, but anyway, thank you very yeah. much for that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Then in the book, you talk about challenging the status quo 
And that awareness, which is of course, mindfulness is the key to change. What do you think happens if we choose to stay in our comfort zone, even if we're not healthy or happy with it? Well, I mean, quite honestly, nothing, nothing, (laughs) nothing changes. Right. And actually I think that's when we can easily become either become victims or continue to see uh, victimization, right. Kind of um, expecting everyone else to change, expecting things to accommodate for us, making excuses for our behaviors. And that's okay. You know, we have to, we have to be able to accept people for who they are. And many people don't want to change because change is difficult. I think I, I probably write that until I'm blue in the face, right. That change is so difficult. Um, I think sometimes what makes it a little bit more possible is looking at it from a body perspective instead of the the mental mindset, because that can be really difficult to shift. But I think that's the saddest thing for me is that if we don't look to change anything, then that's, that's the problem. Nothing changes. And, you know, we continue to even look for different results, continuing to do the same thing, which people say is the definition of insanity. You know, so as hard as it is, change is really what's needed in order to get out of those, you know, negative thought patterns to make even the smallest changes, right, lead to to larger impact. So, you know, emotionally, it just continues to keep us stuck in our, in our, again, thought patterns and our movement patterns. And I really seen it firsthand. I've seen it with clients. I've talked to people about it. I think it very much keeps us in that victim role, instead of really seeing the agency and the power that we have over our own ability to make change. Yeah, I think it takes a lot of energy to stick with the status quo. And you could be using that energy toward making, you know, making yourself well, healthy, you know, happier. Right. It does. It takes a lot, you know, I know it seems daunting. People feel like, oh, but it's going to take so much energy to change, which is true. But I feel like the energy consumption up front makes up for the I don't even know the word kind of ease later on versus always expending energy to just maintain the status quo. (laughs) It's more comfortable, but emotionally it's a, it's a lot more energy. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Well, I have always been fascinated by the emotion body connection. Mm -hmm. Um, But as you speak to in the book, I'm very mind oriented, which I really didn't realize till I was reading because I think of myself as being more holistic, but I am up here in the cerebral area a lot. (laughs) So that would be what you call my first language, I guess. But dance therapy seems to start with the body and the physical awareness in addressing healing. So can you explain what dance therapy is and why it works? Sure. So I will go back to what you said at the beginning that you you had said, I I never thought to try dance therapy. And I, I, you're not alone in that. And that was one of the reasons for writing the book is most people don't even know it exists, you know, don't know that it's an option for, for mental health outside of just using dance, right, for enjoyment and pleasure and as, uh, as a therapeutic intervention. But dance movement therapy as a field, as a, as a westernized field in the United States, came to be in about the late 1940s. And it really came from the idea that certain concerns, certain mental health issues, disorders, diagnoses, especially at that time, were beyond words. You know, people were either not verbal because of their condition, or were afraid to speak, you know, didn't have the vocabulary to express what they were feeling. And so this idea was brought in of, hey, if we bring in a dancer or a choreographer, and we get them to move and dance with the patients, 
let's try it, right? Can't hurt. There's no negative side effect to that. Maybe people will become verbal. And sure enough, people were able to express really deep-seated needs and emotions and desires and fears and anxieties. And it doesn't necessarily mean that people who are nonverbal are going to, you know, end up speaking, you know, reciting poetry or anything, but it's, it's unlocking this inaccessible, actually primitive part of ourselves. And so dance movement therapy is about using movement and sometimes dance, but really movement, which is the core component of dance to integrate the mind, the body, and the spirit. I personally use movement, um, you know, gestural, it can be postural, it can be more, again, mindful or just body awareness to assess, to intervene, um, and to even observe different things that are coming up in um, with clients in the therapeutic session. And so it scares people because they hear the word dance, they hear the word therapy, and they're like, I don't really feel good about either. Why would I put the two of them together? And I try to ease people's anxieties because at the heart of it, it's about using all of our communication at our disposal. And most of our communication, as I mentioned in the book, is nonverbal. So why would we rely on the 10% of our communication to express our fears, our anxieties, our worries, when most of it is housed in the body, you know, trauma or not, it is in the body. Um, And that's really what dance therapy is. You know, a dance therapist is trained to listen with their body to what is in the room, not just what's being said, but picking up on, you know, the mood, the tone, the physicality, again, those postures and gestures, and not to judge or, you know, make assumptions of our clients, but just to be curious and to help them be curious about how the way they show up in that room is also showing up outside of the therapy session and really contributing to the issues and concerns that they have. So for someone, in addition to, of course, reading the book, but if someone wants to just kind of understand this, how can someone start to be more body aware? Well, let me preface this with, if you've ever been in any kind of therapy, not just movement or somatic therapy, Um, You may be familiar with the phrase meeting yourself where you are, right? Or we hear therapists sometimes say meet meet them where they're at. (laughs) I like to say meet them where they are or, or, you know, meet yourself where you are. And so it's not always about adding or even changing anything. It just starts with noticing what's already happening. And so you can do it for 30 seconds even, you know, if you don't have the attention span to to endure 30 minutes or an hour, you know, just start with where you are right now, how you're moving in this moment in time. And people say, oh, well, I'm not moving, but that is movement, right? Stillness is even movement because we want to look at the the movement that's happening under the skin, the movement that's happening at the cellular level. You know, do you feel yourself breathing? Can you tap into your heartbeat? And if you can't, then feel your pulse, you know, put a finger on your, your wrist or around your neck. We want to start reframing what movement is and that it's not just exercise, but it's how we shift, how we breathe, how we hold tension in our bodies. And it seems very simple, but it can be very enlightening, very illuminating because we don't really think of movement in those terms. And that if I start to notice how tension, as an example, is showing up in my body just in this moment, and I allow it to shift even in the slightest way, it can actually have a huge impact on my mental health throughout the day. And then, you know, as I go through my life. So I would say, you know, it sounds simple, but 
just practice awareness and curiosity around how you are in your body in this moment. Don't change anything. The hardest thing is not to assign judgment or any, you know, meaning to it, but just to notice, you know, and if it helps to write it down or, you know, speak it out loud or record yourself to look back on what you're doing, that's really the easiest, most simple way to start is just practicing, noticing what's happening in the moment. That's very mindful practice. It is. It is. I mean, it's, you know, there's nothing to it really. It's just noticing what's happening in your body. (laughs) One of the demonstrations I use in workshops, I do a lot of workshops on change is to have participants cross their arms the opposite way from the way they normally do so that they can just recognize that immediate sort of discomfort we have with physical change. Mm -hmm. And you included that exercise with some others in the book. So you say that challenging our movements is a way to identify our current movement vocabulary. So -hmm. can you explain what that is and why it's important? Our movement vocabulary that I speak of are the sets of postures and gestures and just the way we exist in our body on a regular basis. You know, those can be mannerisms. It could be the tone of our voice. Maybe it's certain phrases that we're used to using. Um, I think I use this example in the book, but I think we've all had that experience where you can see someone from a distance and you know who they are just simply by the way they're standing or, you know, the way they're walking toward or away from you. Um, and so that I see as our vocabulary, you know, it's, it's a, it's a dictionary of sorts that we carry around with us of movements at our disposal and much like verbal language unless we are in school or, you know, really learning vocabulary for the first time or actively reading and challenging our current vocabulary, we tend to use the same phrases and words over and over again. And we do the same thing with movement because it's ingrained, it's patterned, um, it's familiar, it's habitual. And one of the best ways that we can enhance, you know, our resilience and actually lead more emotionally regulated lives is to enhance that vocabulary. So just like you would pick up a book and learn some new words or, you know, read the dictionary, if anybody does that for fun anymore, maybe look at it online. Um, We can do the same thing with our movements and we need to challenge the way we move, just like, you know, crossing your arms the other way or crossing your hands the other way, not just to feel the discomfort, but to actually build new connections so that we can access different ways of moving in order to build that vocabulary. I know we have different purposes for that exercise because I'm trying to get them to see that most people are just uncomfortable with change, but um, I love that it was in there. It's perfect. I mean, no, but that's so perfect because anytime I ask people to do that, the initial reaction is discomfort. (laughs) And then it highlights the fact that, oh, I don't like this change. I'm going to go back (laughs) to what's familiar. So no, it's a great, it's a very simple, totally beneficial exercise for many reasons. We're just funny beings. That's what I tell myself all the time. Mm-hmm. You say that we need to relearn to connect to our bodies, which I completely agree with. But can you share with our listeners what you mean by that? Relearn? Yeah. I, well, I say relearn because, you know, we're used to hearing disconnect, mind body disconnect. And I introduced her very early on in the book, but a colleague of mine kind of highlighted the difference, right, between Western and Eastern practices, which I'm familiar with. But What I thought was so interesting was um, I remember her saying that you can't connect something that's never been disconnected. Like our mind body connection is, is not really disconnected. It's there. It's not in sync. We're not aware of it. It's disjointed. So, you know, as we were putting the book together and kind of looking for subtitles, that idea of reconnecting 
seemed a lot more powerful, relearning to connect because we used to all know how to do it. We're born with that capacity of mind and body connecting. You know, I say this in the book, but body, I believe, is where a lot you know, originates, where our, our movement patterns lead to the mind, lead to the thoughts. And we lose that somewhere along the way, you know, just like play and imagination. We, we seem to outgrow it, even though it's just as necessary. We seem to forget that it's accessible or say, oh, that's, we're not into that. It's not, you know, it's, it's woo woo or, you know, it's not my, not the way I operate. So, so relearning was really important to me because I thought we already know how to do that. We just have to remember how to do it figuring it out again, learning how to tap into how my mind and body are connected. And if, if there's a disconnect between them, they're not speaking the, the same language, right? Or they're not translating their languages, then I need to look at um, how I can do that in a healthy way that actually allows me to overcome, again, a lot of these stuff patterns and habits that have formed. Absolutely. I was fascinated by the impact movement has on child development and a little alarmed, honestly, about how detrimental something as common as strollers or high chairs could have on a child. So can you share a little bit about the importance of movement in brain development? Absolutely. We don't talk about this enough. And while it's not the central theme, right, of my book, it was definitely something I wanted to put in there because I remember learning it in graduate school and being so validated, but also in awe and wondering why we didn't talk about this more, why we didn't know about this. And so for people listening, basically I talk about how we go through certain movement milestones. Um, And again, this is not my research, this research is already out there, but these movement milestones are different than developmental milestones. So a movement milestone or a developmental movement pattern would be what some people might know of as like a head tail connection. You know, so when you try to do what a lot of people know of as like a cat-cow stretch or child's pose. These are actually ways that we connect our head and our tail. And that's just one example of a developmental movement pattern, not necessarily the milestones the developmental milestones we think of in school, which is, you know, sensory or, you know, motor learning, social, emotional, those are different. But when we have a developmental movement milestone or pattern that's not met, which can often happen because we are not learning to hold our own bodies up. We are being assisted or supported in that. So that can be holding a child for too long. And I don't mean like an hour. I mean, like as they age, I see so many kids that are in strollers in like they're five and six. That's, that's a little old for kids to be in a stroller because they, they need to be experiencing the world for themselves. They need to be actually holding themselves up. Our spine is what connects us to our self-awareness. And when we stand vertically, we tap into our spine. I mean, it literally holds our bodies up. So, and, and of course, in this moment, I'm not speaking about individuals who can't do that for themselves, right? Who need assisted devices, but the book goes into kind of making adjustments and understanding that that's still possible. But for neurotypical development, it's so important for us to have that inner resource. And I saw with my kids, you know, there were devices 
that we're sitting them up before they were ready because it's convenient. I've been there, but if we do it for too long and we rely on that instead of letting the child learn to sit up or, or reach for something on their own, it does have huge implications and more so psychologically, you know, so we have so many conversations now about not being able to have boundaries, not being able to speak up for ourselves or set limits. And that actually starts in infancy, starts in toddlerhood. When we learn to stand up for ourselves, we learn to understand what's mine, what's yours. I come into myself and then I can reach out and see what's safe and what's not and what's allowed. And, you know, but it's not just physical. It's not just the exercise piece. And I felt like that was really important. It was something that I learned again in graduate school. It's very woven into a lot of somatics and a lot of movement therapy education, but it's not very mainstream. And so parents understand that certain things lead to poor muscle tone, but they don't necessarily understand how it leads to a child's inability to make a decision in college. That's what caught my attention. I'm familiar with the regular child development milestones, but this was different. I was like, oh, that makes so much sense though. Hmm. Really interesting. You discuss that when brain development is stunted or deteriorates, as with Alzheimer's patients, that movement patterns also deteriorate and that reintroducing those patterns can enhance cognitive potential. Mm -hmm. So can you describe what you've learned through working with people with Alzheimer's and other dementias? Yeah, um, this is something I, I recognized very early on. So of these developmental movement patterns, our most advanced one is called cross lateral. And that might sound unfamiliar, but you all engage in it in some way when you're walking, typically. Your right leg moves, your left leg swings. And there's just this kind of natural cross rhythm happening in the body. And I was noticing that for a lot of my clients who were pretty advanced in their dementia, not only were we sitting most of the time, but when they're walking, there's such a, again, kind of a disconnect between the upper body and the lower body. So there's sometimes a shuffling of the feet. The upper body might be very still, or it can be, again, kind of like low muscle tone, a little shaky, a little unbalanced. But that cross lateral movement was not happening. And, you know, I recognized this very early on when we would be in our groups and I would invite people to march. Let's march to the rhythm of the music. And even sitting down, I noticed that people were marching what we call homolaterally. So their right leg would move and their right arm would move. And then same on the other side. And I don't know, anybody listening, if you want to try it, for anybody that is, again, kind of neurotypical, you might find it very hard to do homolateral movement. It's just very natural for us to cross laterally march. And it just made me think, you know, oh, okay. So obviously we know that the brain is is degenerating and it's clear to me that so were the developmental movement patterns. Uh, And so I started to, again, use my background in movement therapy and bring in very basic, gentle movement practices that mirrored and followed these movement patterns. And so I would encourage them, you know, as we're marching to, you know, take your left hand and touch your right knee, take your right hand, touch your left knee. So we start to cross what we call the midline of the body, which actually allows one hemisphere of the brain to talk to the other. You know, we can clasp our hands, we can cross our arms, we can rub, give ourselves a hug. And if we primed that enough, 
when we started to march, people could actually get that cross lateral motion going. It wasn't permanent. It wasn't like I saw everybody walking down the hall, reintegrating that pattern. But just in those moments, it did spark more conversation. It did spark more memories. People's faces lit up. Their affect changed. They really came alive. And it allowed us to tap into identity, which a lot of people feel is robbed when it comes to Alzheimer's or different dementias. They feel like that's, it's no longer the person they knew. And I always felt like that's true, except that that person is in there. We just have to learn different ways to access them. And for me, uncovering some of these these movement patterns that had almost like disintegrated, bringing them back in and really focusing on them allowed the identity to come through. And again, it's fleeting. It wasn't permanent. These people do have, you know, a degenerative disease, but it's all about quality of life and it's all about being in the moment and to have those, those moments of awareness, coming back to that awareness piece, these moments of integrity and creativity um, is like a key that unlocks potential. Amazing. I'm sure I'm not alone in this. I hope I'm not the only one. But with the restrictions we've all been under to varying degrees over the past couple of years, I have found moving has become a challenge. I've had to resort to setting an alarm to make me get up every hour because I'm on camera. I'm on Zoom sometimes eight hours a day, so I'm not getting up and moving. And again, I don't think I'm alone. I think a lot of people have become much more sedentary from this. And so I'm wondering if you can give us a few tips about how we can incorporate more movement into our daily lives. You're definitely not alone. I would fall into that category as well. Um, you know, even as a movement therapist, I am not moving in the ways that I did, and I've really had to adapt. I think for anybody listening that's more cerebral, you know, it's okay to almost make a list at first of the, the ways that you were moving or even the ways that you expect yourself to move, just to kind of put it out there, you know, that these are the ways I'm expecting myself to do this but this might not be realistic in this moment in time, maybe in the future, maybe not ever. And if I don't get that out there, I, I might never get out of my own way, right? So the expectations that we're looking for, I think is, is a big one. From an actual movement perspective, again, I think it's really important to notice one, the movements we're already doing. And well, let me give you an example. So under lockdown, you know, or these stricter um, guidelines, a lot of people were obviously staying in, were cooking more. You know, I, I don't pride myself on cooking. I'm not, I'm certainly not a chef, but even you know, my family and I were cooking more. And so an example of adding more movement into that would be instead of buying everything pre-set, pre-chopped, pre-sliced, pre-diced, you get the ingredients and you do that yourself. And some people are going, oh, <laughs> but that's, it's so time consuming. And, oh, why do it when it's already done for me? But those are the movements that, you know, Katie Bowman talks about, they're being outsourced. We're asking other people to do our movements for us, for convenience, you know, and for time. And so those are ways that we can just bring more movement into our day. One example, right? Like cooking. Um, another example I'd like to give is chances are people were still driving, you know, we're traveling, we're in our cars or we're taking planes again. We want to look at how our environment is shaping the way we're moving. So, you know, if I'm sitting in traffic, if I'm stuck on the runway, um, can I take the time to be mindful of how my body is, again, being shaped by my seat, my chair, 
the temperature, the people around me, and we can, again, look for those basic movements that actually lead to the bigger ones, right? Like how we're breathing, how we're sitting, how we're posturing, um, you know, our shoulders, they sneak up on us so quickly. And just noticing the space between your shoulders and your ears, you know, your earlobes can be a big one. Um, you know, and if we're looking for actual movements, like how do we exercise? How do we get out there? You know, for me, I found just getting outside when possible, you know, just even if it was just around the block, if it was just down the street, instead of putting these huge parameters or these huge, huge expectations of, you know, I will, I will run for the next hour. For me, it was baby steps. It was just getting outside, getting some fresh air, moving my body in ways that it wasn't used to anymore because I had been so confined and the restrictions of the pandemic really translated onto my body. You know, I was really constricting my movements so much. So again, look at the ways you're already moving and we want to start to challenge how we can increase them or start to add a little bit of natural movement into what we're already doing. I think that's great. And I think I, I wore a rut in my block because I walked around the block too, like every single day and sometimes two or three times a day. But then again, even still, because I've become so much more sedentary, what used to be natural isn't anymore. Like I said, I have to be prompted to get up and that's not a healthy thing. So I'm glad for that reminder. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like breathing, stretching. Yeah. You know, I always talk about yawning. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. We don't think of it as ex- as movement because it, it's, it doesn't break a sweat. You know, it's not, we might not even feel that different afterwards, but those small movements make a huge difference over time. So bring those into your day more often. And I, I promise you will see a difference. I'm always for baby steps because I think it's almost a sneaky way to start changing and shifting because it doesn't seem too hard. So, you know, before you know it though, it's, it leads to big changes. So that's and it's more sustainable. You know, if you make yeah. a big shift, it's a lot harder to maintain that, you know, it's, yeah. it's why New Year's resolutions don't work for exactly. the most part. You know, if I haven't worked out for 15 years and I make <laughs> the decision that January 1st, I'm going to the gym and I'm going to stay there for three hours. <laughs> You're not going back the next day, you know. That's right. <laughs> um, so baby steps, I think, are what makes the the change sustainable and and possible. I agree. This is something anyone can do, whether physically challenged, neurodiverse, young or old, which I love. The book includes movement prescriptions as well as body aware breaks, which I also enjoyed. And it's really just full of just tons of information, useful information that will really help improve mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual health and well-being. So uh, you also include a long list of resources at the back. So there's, it's just chock full of information. And I really enjoyed it. I do want to thank you for writing it and for sharing all of your wisdom with us here today. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I'm so glad that it resonated for you. And I, I hope it obviously resonates for for your audience. I I'd love to hear from people if they have feedback and questions or comments about it as they're reading. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you again to Erica for joining us today. You can view the full interview and find a link to her book, Body Aware, on our website at amindfulmoment.com. For more information on Erica's work, go to ericahornthal.com. Until next time, I encourage you to meditate daily and be mindful in all of your everyday activities. 
Simply bring your full awareness to the present moment to build your mindfulness skills. Paying attention to every detail of what you're doing, from washing dishes to work tasks to taking a walk. Your mind will wander, and that's normal. Each time you notice it has wandered, that's mindfulness. Consider how wonderful the world could be if everyone was mindful. You can help make that happen. It all starts with a mindful moment. Please subscribe to A Mindful Moment. And if you'd like to support us, we would deeply appreciate you visiting patreon.com slash a mindful moment. Follow us on social media at A Mindful Moment Podcast. Visit our website, amindfulmoment.com, to access podcasts, scripts, and book recommendations. A Mindful Moment is written by Teresa McKee. The English version is hosted by Teresa McKee, and the Spanish version is translated and hosted by Paola Tile. Post-production and talent booking, Melissa Sims. Intro music, Retreat, by Jason Farnham. Outro music, Morning Stroll, by Josh Kirsch, MediaWrite Productions. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is produced by Work to Live Productions. 